Hello and welcome to The Last Best Hope, a podcast from the RAI at Oxford University, which examines America from the outside in. My name's Adam Smith. May God bless America. 3,253 miles away from the U.S. Capitol steps, the folks of Ballina, Ireland, were celebrating with Joe Biden. Hello, everybody. Thank you. My mother uh, was uh, a proud, proud woman who... Uh, taught us that, uh, I guess it comes from these Irish roots, that you never bend, uh, you never break. Resilience is critically important. According to the latest census, around 31 million Americans, that's almost one in 10 people, identify as Irish. 23 US presidents, including Barack Obama and Joe Biden, have claimed Irish roots. Who doesn't want to claim a bit of Irishness? The Blarney, the Crack, the Shamrock headgear the happy position of claiming a white identity that nevertheless allows you to imply that you know what oppression feels like. Migration, forced or otherwise, is, of course, the quintessential American story. And Irishness is just one of the tapas menu of available identities grounded in claims about ethnicity or gender or sexuality or other things in modern American life. But being Irish in America has a long backstory, longer than most of those other available identities. It's a story that intersects with religion, with class conflict and industrialization, as well as, inevitably, with the question of race. To understand more about why being Irish has come to have such a cachet in America, I talked to Kevin Kenny, the Glucksman Professor of History at New York University, and David Gleason, Professor of American History at Northumbria University in Newcastle. Both of them expert scholars on the history of the Irish in America. Joe Biden identifies as a scrappy, working-class Irish-American. There's something to that. He's affiliated with Scranton, Pennsylvania, the mining country. And he's not just, I think, tapping into something every four years for electoral reasons. Uh, This means a lot to him his Irishness and his Catholicism. Kevin mentioned Biden is proud of his Irish heritage, but it's on his mother's side, right? So he doesn't really claim his English heritage on his father's side. So that tells you something about this cachet of being Irish America today. I would say it's more kind of, you know, really starting with Kennedy is kind of a 20th century phenomenon. There wasn't much cachet in it before that. But the scrappiness, the kind of salt of the earth, we built this country, built the roads, we built the bridges, we built the railroads. It gives you a certain rootedness, I think, in a country that's often very fluid, where people move around a lot, are not from a certain place. They look for that kind of claim of of authenticity. When I was a graduate student in Mississippi, signing up for my first classes, people would say to me, oh, where are you from? I said, well, I'm Irish too, you know, they would say. I said, oh, really? Is it your father, your grandfather? No, it's just like way back, Scotch-Irish from from the 19th century. But there was a certain, you know, claim of, of authenticity there with it. I mean, when we talk about figures, it's not measuring that each such person has four Irish grandparents by any means. The U.S. Census invites you to identify your primary ethnicity. Who are you? And Irishness has cachet in that context. The number varies depending on the level of cachet. To the extent that we even know, roughly half of that number are probably Protestant. So we're not talking about a monolithic block. We're talking about something much more complicated regionally and geographically disparate 
Um, historically interesting because it goes back to the 18th century and its origins. The peak point of Catholic Irish emigration to the United States was in the late 1840s and 1850s, but there were Catholic Irish coming before then, but that was the peak period, and I want to come to why that was in a moment. But before then, there were plenty of people from the island of Ireland who emigrated to the United States. And in your answer earlier, Dave, you you use this term Scots-Irish, which is not a term that anybody in the British Isles or in Ireland uses, so far as I know, but it's it's a very specific American term. So where does that come from? And who were these pre-1840s Irish immigrants? These are the people that came from, from Scotland to Ulster in the northern part of Ireland during the plantations in the 1600s, and then immigrated in large numbers by the hundreds of thousands in the 18th century into colonial America. Although they they still keep coming into the 19th century when the United States is formed. They have different kinds of names, often just Irish, because they're Protestant Irish, Ulster, Ulster American, Scotch Irish, Scots Irish. Patrick Griffin, in his his great book about the community in Pennsylvania, calls them the people with no name, right? Although Irish, I think, Kirby Miller, another historian would argue that Irish is the name that they claimed for themselves and somebody like Andrew Jackson, for example, who becomes president in 1829, his parents, both his parents, were from from County Antrim, and he would claim, particularly when pitching for already an Irish vote in places like New York and Philadelphia, swing states for him, the Democrats would say that you know our president's the son of an Irishman. So, what was it then that made these Scots Irish or these Ulster Irish or these people with no name? What was it that made them distinctive? What was it that Andrew Jackson was was drawing on, for example, when he talked up his Irish Protestant identity, Kevin? I guess what what made the Scots-Irish distinctive was their Presbyterianism more than anything else. So it's the antithesis of sort of Puritanism. So if we think about early America, we think about a kind of Yankee Puritan culture. This is not that. Some some of the Presbyterians come to Boston. Uh, Cotton Mather, the noted Puritan divine, is reputed to have described their arrival as the formidable attempts of Satan and his sons to unsettle us. Uh, so there was no love lost between the Presbyterians and the Puritans, although they were both dissenting Protestants. Um, they displayed a remarkable capacity to move west, to move into what was called the frontier, to move west in Massachusetts, to move into New Hampshire, but ultimately to settle in Pennsylvania and then move west and then move south all along the backcountry, uh, all the way to Georgia. So this was this was Irish America as late as 1820. There were Catholic Irish, there were Anglican Irish, but predominantly a Presbyterian dissenting religious culture. There's something about, ex- is it extreme individualism? Is it a willingness to use violence? Is it a kind of rugged masculinity? Where, do, where does gender play into this? It seems a very, it's a very, very kind of masculine, rough set of characteristics associated with Scots-Irishness, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, Kevin mentioned the frontier and, you know, wherever they are, they set themselves up as opposition to the kind of Eastern establishment. If it's the Puritans in Boston, the Quakers in Philadelphia, which which Kevin has written about, or the Huguenots in South Carolina, it's always in opposition to those folk. And after you'll find places like Derry, New Hampshire, Letterkenny, Pennsylvania, Greencastle, you know, where they went and settled on the frontier. And that is seen as a kind of a a masculine thing. Davy Crockett, you know, claimed to be Scots-Irish as leading the front. But the thing is, I mean, they often moved as communities. They often moved as families, which is interesting. So they brought, unlike the Catholic Irish who managed to make it over in the 18th and often early 19th centuries, they came as individuals. 
they often came as families, whole families, whole communities. So they were able to set up those communities. So there is the image of Andrew Jackson, Indian fighter, but actually the real reality is and why they become so prominent is because they come as, you know, they bring women and children and parents with them to set up their communities and their Presbyterian churches in the back countries. So the the reality of a kind of domestic life and moving and, and building communities and building communities around churches kind of sits in a something of a tension with that image of kind of rugged masculinity, a hard drinking, rugged masculinity. Um, but was it in fact demographically, sociologically, the reality, Kevin, that these early Irish immigrants were the outsiders? Were they at a low rung on the on the social ladder, at least among white folks? Oh, yes. Uh, they were on a low rung of the social ladder. And in fact, they were uh, described as the wild Irish. And so we're familiar with the term wild Irish from later periods in history. But the wild Irish of the 18th century were the Presbyterian Irish on the frontier. There's an abundant negative description of them. We have to remember also that their ancestors and often just their parents or grandparents had come from lowland Scotland to Ulster in the 17th and early 18th century. And I I would say that um, they left Scotland for Ulster for the same reason that the people we call the Scotch-Irish then left Ulster to come to America. Two reasons. One is access to land, and the other is to do with religion. They did not want to set up a city upon a hill, but they wanted freedom to be able to practice their religion as they saw fit. They were afraid of being persecuted. They had been persecuted in the 17th century. So they're looking for space on which they can accumulate land to call their own, They move to the frontier. They take land as squatters, both from the Penn family in Pennsylvania and from Native American nations that lay claim to that land. And they build community in that peculiar setting, the rugged frontier setting. They do build community based on Presbyterianism. These Scots-Irish, you could describe them as being socially marginal, which is why they moved to the marginal land and why they set themselves up in opposition, as you've described, to the establishments in the various colonies or states where they lived. Does that mean they were marginal to our understanding of how early American history developed? Can you talk about how you would assess the kind of historical contribution of Scots-Irish communities in the late 18th and early 19th century? Yeah, from a cultural perspective, they're seen as marginal. I'd encourage your listeners to find Charles Woodmason's diary, who was an Anglican minister who was sent up to, you know, Anglicanize these Scots-Irish settlers in the South Carolina upcountry. And he said they're worse than the Native Americans, they're worse than the Indians. They're that savage and uncivilized. But those same people he was talking about have connections in places like Charleston. They have business connections. They're sending their goods to be sold by Scots-Irish merchants on Upper King Street in Charleston. Some like the Adger family who later become big, big bankers. So they are connected. They are political as well. So they get involved. They speak English. It's unlike some states, Germans in Pennsylvania, they can they can work their way into the system a lot easier. And so they do make a contribution. But, you know, your point is, is a good one in terms of they're often seen as marginal because the original history of the American Revolution is all about Lexington and Concord and Puritans and Sam Adams. Right. And they realize that when they form their Scotch-Irish societies to kind of revive this history in the 19th century, they're like, we, hey, we were the backbone of the American Revolution, not the New England Puritans. We were the ones who who led the fight against against the British. And they're looking to do that. And, and that's being recognized more and more by the work by Kevin, by Patrick Griffin and others, the importance of the kind of Scots-Irish element in the American Revolution. And I often say, they're often among the first Americans. And Andrew Jackson is, is the key example of that. He sets himself up as the first 
Americans. We're there to start to make ourselves Americans because we're, we were cut off from our, our native land. We don't have the connections with England like English Americans had or even Huguenots with France speaking French or German speaking German. We're the ones that really kind of set the plate what it means to be truly American. Well, let me just add, I mean, uh, Senator James Webb publishes a book about 10 years ago called The Fighting Irish, tapping into that heritage that we've just discussed. So he was a senator from Virginia, wasn't he? Senator from Virginia. Senate Democratic senator from Virginia, who was really kind of galvanizing this, sort of drawing attention to his own Scots-Irish, not his Catholic-Irish, his Scots-Irish ancestry. Exactly, exactly. And so we could say that culturally, that's still the dominant conception of the fighting Irish, and he tapped into that. Benjamin Franklin in the 18th century uh, described the Paxton boys who perpetrated a Native American massacre as Christian white savages. But at the same time, Roughly half of the Scots-Irish in Pennsylvania lived around Philadelphia, and they played an important role in the American Revolution, as David says. And then later in the 19th century, they trumpeted that role in a series of local histories. So, so there's more than one dimension to this. Let's talk about the transformation in the nature of Irish Americanness that occurred with the huge influx of Catholic Irish from Ireland in the late 1840s and, and 1850s. Kevin, tell us something about the historical significance. I mean, why why was there this huge influx? It was connected, of course, with the, I mean, in our memory, we think about it connected to the Irish famine. Can you talk a bit about who who it was who made that journey across the Atlantic and why and when and where they settled when they arrived in America? Yeah, so if we look at the period 1820 to 1920, which we refer to as the era of mass migration, really, from Europe to the United States. In that period, fully 5 million people leave Ireland uh, for the present-day United States. Even before the famine, the generation before the famine, leading up to 1845, 1 million people leave out of a country that reaches its historical peak in population in 1845 at 8.5 million. Still bigger than it is today, 8.5 million. So as a result of the famine, between 1845 and 1855, 2 million people leave that small island and come to the United States. In the decades that follow up through World War I, uh, almost another 3 million people leave. There are others go to Australia, others go to Canada, but we're just talking about the United States here, 5, five million people. If you look at the numbers, uh, if you stop the clock again in 1850 or 1860, and you look at New York City or Boston, you're going to discover that one quarter, 25% of all people living in that city are Irish born. I mean, let's just sort of pause and think about it. those numbers are incredible. It's incredible in terms of, I mean, this is not the subject of our conversation today, but in the impact on Ireland yeah. to have that high proportion of your population leaving over a very short space of time. But also you think about that impact in an urban environment like New York City or Boston and to have a concentrated immigrant population all coming from the same place and, and, and sharing, for the most part, the same religion. So this new Catholic-Irish immigration, we Kevin has, has talked a little bit about the, as it were, the, the push factors, what's driving them out of Ireland. What What is drawing them to the United States and specifically to the urban, the urbanizing United States. This is a very kind of different environment from the, the frontier world in which the Scots-Irish had, had settled in previous decades. 
Yeah, it's it's economic opportunity. You know, they are urban pioneers, even though they're predominantly rural people when they leave Ireland. They settle uh, mostly in, in cities in the United States. New York is, you know, an entrepost. So they, they land there, of course, and they may not have the means to go further afield like maybe some of those Scots-Irish communities that moved with, you know, with whole families and with some resource and an available cheap land uh, not too far to the west. But also, you know, the, the Erie Canal, the railroads, they're all kind of based, they become labour depots in some ways. And then, of course, churches are formed, communities are formed, taverns. So you land in New York, how am I going to get a job? I'm going to go to the Irish bar. I'm going to go to the Irish church. There are immigrant aid societies, often set up actually by some of the earlier Protestant settlers with some more prominent early Catholics who provide some kind of opportunity for you for, for when you land. The process of community formation begins actually with emigrant remittances, with sending money back, because you have to ask yourself in a country so poor and so devastated by famine, how could people leave in the first place? The answer is massive amount of money that's sent back from these communities in New York and Boston to bring uh, siblings and cousins and other family members out. So this is what's known as chain migration. And then within the communities, the ethnic communities that are built on that basis, you have employment patterns uh, among what we call unskilled laborers. Believe me, they could do work that I couldn't do. Uh, <laughs> work that I couldn't do, yes. Yeah, they weren't skilled in the sense of being artisans. But the demand for their labor is so heavy that the American word for an unskilled male laborer is a paddy. And the American word for a domestic, female domestic servant is a Bridget. Bridget. Um, so these, these are the jobs that they fill. Dave was talking there about the social infrastructure that was created because you had a concentration of people who knew each other or who had kind of some sense of kinship, bars and systems for getting people jobs and getting people a place to stay. Is that dense social network, those infrastructure that Irish Catholic immigrants created, is that what provided the, the seedbed for the Irish immigrants' entry and successful entry into urban politics in the mid and late 19th century? Is there a connection between those two things? Yes, I think so, definitely overall. Um, one thing we almost always would be likely to forget because it's so obvious is that they spoke English. Even those of them who knew Irish tended to speak English as well. So in other words, the number of monolingual Irish speakers among these famine migrants, we would estimate, was maybe as low as 5%. So they had a head, an obvious head start, so obvious that we sometimes forget it, that they could negotiate that society, even if they were disliked by their hosts, they spoke English. On that basis of English-speaking emigrant remittances and labor, emerge as a form of community, often with the saloon or tavern at the center of it, where favors are uh, made and given and dispensed, where jobs are, are allocated, where wages are spent. And out of that, uh, we can trace the emergence of a bottom-up, um, very distinctively Irish uh, form, form of urban politics. Yeah, I would just add to what Kevin said there. There's also, there's a kind of a society culture, right? There is it's an American thing to talk to us that Americans were joiners, right? You kind of build your own societies. And there are Hibernian societies throughout the United States and the famine Irish, And then they form their own ones, like the St. Patrick's Benevolent Society in Charleston, which was you paid a remittance. It was social. But also if, if somebody died on the job, your widow would get money out of it to pay for your funeral. So that core is there as well. 
Um, and often you'll have elite Irish leading those groups, looking then in return for political favours. And Tammany Hall's a bit, bit like that. It is actually founded as not as an Irish thing, but as an American political organisation. And of course, its most famous leader, Boss Tweed, everybody thinks him as an Irish-American, all probably of Scots-Irish of heritage, who becomes the first leader of it. So it works like a society of providing benevolence, providing work in particular. It starts with the city, right? Its city provides jobs, paving contracts, policing is starting in 1840s and 50s to be organised, those kind of public sector jobs at the city. And you give us our votes and we give you that in, in return to look after you. Which you need in, in urban areas, at least in the countryside, if you've a bit of land and things are bad, you can still eat. If you know a job in the city, you're going to starve. This is sounding like a really good news story so far. This is sounding like a society that's able to kind of comfortably assimilate and give positions of political power, even to people who have a religion, Catholicism, which is so different from that of mainstream culture. But of course, that isn't the whole story, is it, Kevin? So, you know, you've already alluded to the kind of the host society, mainstream white Anglo-Saxon Protestant American society disliking this this Irish influx. And it, it was a a massive cultural challenge to what the United States was. So what were the forms of opposition in the mid-19th century to this new Catholic immigration? And, and, and how did the, the new Catholic immigrants negotiate and push back against that? I mean, it's an irony of Irish-American history, in my mind, that the Irish achieve political success before they achieve economic success. Now, it's not a bed of roses for the Irish in the mid-19th century. They are acquiring local political power, but they are also enduring considerable hostility from native-born Americans on the grounds of their poverty, at the basic level on the grounds of how famine immigrants look, how they dress, how they smell, how they speak. They're an alien presence on the streets of New York, Boston, and Philadelphia. They're highly visible. And American nativists, as we call them, do, do not like what they're seeing. Catholicism is a major bone of contention. They're coming into a largely Protestant political culture. There are questions about Catholicism. Will these immigrants be loyal to the Republic, or will they be loyal to Rome? Will they vote as their priests tell them? Or will they have an independent uh, political mind? Uh, why don't they like the public school system? The public school system is a crowning accomplishment of American democracy. Why do they want their own parochial schools, their own parish schools? Uh, perhaps above all, in, in my mind, the Irish align on a particular side of the growing controversy over slavery. They are not uh, ready-made abolitionists, to put it mildly. And the Democratic Party that we're talking about is simultaneously the party of immigrants and the working class, but also the party of slavery. That's the party they affiliate with. So something very peculiar happens in the 1850s, which is that this nativist impulse, which is ever-present in American life, nativism is intense hostility to immigrants on the grounds of their foreign or un-American connections. I'm quoting the historian John Hyam there. Um, you're going to have nativism throughout American history because America is a nation of immigrants. But something very peculiar happens in the 1850s. There is a political crisis generated by slavery that leads to the collapse of the two-party system, Democrats against Whigs. The Democrats survive, but into the political vacuum steps a nativist party called the Know-Nothings, viciously anti-Irish, but itself split over slavery, undecided in the North, opposed to the expansion of slavery in the South. 
in favour of slavery. So a very volatile political situation coinciding with the massive influx from the famine produces what is actually a unique political configuration where nativism as a cultural impulse actually becomes a political force. So that's the countervailing tendency to Irish local power in Tammany Hall and other societies. I think a really key idea here is that Catholicism was seen to be at odds with republicanism. How could you have republican virtue? How could you be loyal to the republic if you also had this loyalty to a foreign potentate, i.e. to the Bishop of Rome? In that sense, anti-Catholicism as a framework of thought is analogous to anti-communism in the 20th century. In both cases, there is an anxiety about an alien population who are disloyal. Into that context comes the Civil War. And as Kevin has said, the Irish are mostly lined up with the Democratic Party, which has had its strength in the South and which is, of the two parties, the one that is most supportive of the slave power. And so this is a real moment of crisis for the Civil War, isn't it? I mean, you've written extensively about this, Dave. So the Civil War is a moment of crisis for Irish America, a kind of testing point as viewed from the, the mainstream American population, a testing point of their loyalty. And when we think about the Irish in the Civil War, one of the episodes that quickly springs to mind is the New York City draft riots in July 1863, which were an extraordinary week, several days of, of conflagration in New York City that was sparked off by, not exclusively, but, but a lot of Irish immigrants resisting being conscripted into the Union Army. So that seemed to confirm to white Protestant America, all their worst fears about Irish immigrants, right? They were literally fighting to avoid being conscripted to fight for the Republic. And yet, as always, there are other layers to this story. Dave, can you kind of talk about how, in the end, the Irish immigrants in the South, if you like, as well as in the North, negotiated the Civil War and how they, if they did, managed to kind of leverage the wartime experience in order to gain legitimacy as part of the American polity afterwards? Yeah, you're right, Adam. I mean, it, it is it is a big turning point for them because there was a genuine concern that Irish in the North in particular wouldn't, wouldn't fight for the United States. They were Democrats. They did not like the Republican Party. They were anti-abolitionists. Uh, their clergy, for the most part, not all, but for the most part, had expressed those kind of views. But when the South seceded, when they fired on Fort Sumter, the choice was made, the Boston Pilot, you know, the most popular Irish Catholic paper in, in antebellum America, basically says the union, it must be preserved. So we're going to take our stand for the United States. And then some ethnic leaders like Thomas Francis Marr and others see that as an opportunity to counter the know-nothing view that you can't be Irish Catholic and smaller Republican and loyal to the United States. So drive a big recruitment drive to get the Irish into the United States Army. Um, ironically, I think the Irish in the South had an easier stance to take to side with the Confederacy because they, you know, the Democratic Party, they had even some of the, the most pro-slavery politicians, people like Jefferson Davis, had been friends of the Irish and stood up against the know-nothings in the 1850s. So they had found a kind of a, a, a natural enough to ally with people who'd been their allies beforehand. And also you had certain Irish political leaders like John Mitchell, for example, who said, we want to repeal the union in between Great Britain and Ireland. Why are we for the union here? The vast majority, however, of Irish Americans 
the Irish in America see it as, you know, the United States is the greatest, despite all the issues, we don't want to sugarcoat it. You know, Irish poverty was very real. The Irish are overrepresented in prisons, asylums. Uh, they are America's immigration, quote unquote, immigration problem, first immigration problem in the 1850s. But they still see it as kind of a place where they can have opportunity and they don't want to see that destroyed. And also, it would also perhaps help Great Britain, who they see as, as the great rival of the United States. So they try to harness that war as a way to prove their loyalty. Um, Christian Semido calls it becoming American under fire. And he, and he says the same for African-Americans, right? That a part of being a Republican citizen, a member of a republic, is that you're willing to fight for it. You're willing to volunteer and fight for it. So the Irish do that on, on both sides. But it is hindered by the fact that when the war turns from about the Union to abolition, after the Emancipation Proclamation comes into effect in January 1st, 1863, a lot of the Irish and a lot of Regular American Democrats, again, in your work, Adam, the, you know, officers resigned their commissions. I didn't f- sign up to fight to free the slaves. I signed up to fight to save the Union. And of course, the draft riot is is part of that, comes out of that. And also, Irish have massive casualty rates at the Battle of Fredericksburg, the Battle of Antietam. Um, the Irish Brigade is pretty much not really a brigade anymore by the time we get to the Battle of Gettysburg. But Ivor Bernstein's great book on the New York City draft riot shows us there's deeper things going on here than opposition to abolition. There is you know, the same people who are trying to are against our church, trying to close our bars where we, you know, and stop us drinking, not just because we want to have a drink, because that's where we get a job, are the same people now who are in favor of abolition and want to draft us into the army to go and die for that. So it was a challenge in their communities that kind of sparked that outpouring of, of, of virulent violence in the draft right. So when you get to the end of the war, you have people like George Templeton Strong, the great diarist who Ken Burns uses a lot, you know, the kind of patrician Republican New Yorker who sees, again, the Irish again as, as savages, as not really Americans, because of the draft right. And often then the sacrifice in the battles is forgotten about, so much so that actually it's in the, in the memory and the memoirs of the war that the Irish in America try to say, hey, we did do these things. It wasn't just about the draft riot. So they're publishing memoirs, they're setting up memorials at places like Gettysburg and at the Notre Dame campus and places like that. To, to remind people that they did do that fight. But it's really, it is touch and go. I kind of disagree with Christian Semido in that I don't think the war made them become American under fire. It was how they interpreted it afterwards that helped them become American after the Civil War. I'll just add one thing to what you're saying, David. Abraham Lincoln had a complex... I always like to get an Abraham Lincoln reference into every podcast idea if possible. So yeah, carry on, Kevin. Indeed, we must get Lincoln in. And a complex evolution in his thinking about African-Americans as late as the eve of the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, he was entertaining ideas for colonization, for moving free African-Americans out out of the country. And only towards the very end of his life did he begin to entertain the possibility of black citizenship. And he was still undecided uh, uh, when he was assassinated. It's significant to me that black military service was one of the things that influenced Lincoln's thinking about the future of African-Americans in society. It's equally significant to me that he never had to ask that question about the Irish. The Irish demonstrated their loyalty by fighting. Whether they were fighting to preserve the Union or to abolish slavery is another question, but they fought in the Union Army, and as you say, David, much was made of that afterwards as well. But Abraham Lincoln, for one, never had any doubt that Irish immigrants could become citizens. There's a fundamental distinction between Irish immigrants and African-Americans in that regard. And the Know Nothing movement for all its power never succeeded. They never even wanted to restrict the numbers because they needed the labor. 
but they never succeeded in extending the naturalization period. They wanted to say 21 years instead of five years before you became a citizen. And they certainly never succeeded outside of one case in Massachusetts in extending the period after naturalization when he could vote. So I'm, I'm on Lincoln's side in this. I think that the status of the Irish at that level in American society was not in doubt. As you said earlier, Kevin, I mean, the Know Nothing Party was an extraordinary, albeit temporary, explosion into the political arena of an overtly anti-immigration political party. But really, in the long run of things, it's incredible how unsuccessful they were. The the only really successful period of of immigration restriction in the United States comes in the 1920s. And it's not until the 20th century there's the really effective blockages on, on immigration. I mean, what you say there is so interesting, Kevin. There was, I mean, it was, I guess it was 25 years ago now, there was a famous book written by historian Noel Ignatieff called How the Irish Became White. And that title was an answer to a question he posed about how this underclass of immigrants came to be accepted, assimilated fully into mainstream American society. And his answer as the title How the Irish Became White indicates was essentially about race. I mean, his notion was that when they first arrived, they were racialized as another. And you can look at cartoons by famous cartoonists like Thomas Nast, who was prolific in the 1860s and 70s and 80s, and and see the way in which he depicted Irish immigrants as racially different. I mean, looking like monkeys in much the way that Irish people were depicted in London cartoons as well at the same time. But what you're saying, Kevin, is that while there's clearly some truth to that attempt to racialize the Irish as another, there's still, there's a fundamental difference between their experience and that of African Americans. I think there is a fundamental difference that calls into question whether we can use the term race to describe both experiences. If that word applies to both, it, it to me, it becomes too vague and uh, elastic. Um, the Irish could enter the country freely they could move around, they could get jobs, they could testify in court, they could naturalize, and they could vote. Most African Americans could do fewer any of those things in the 19th century. So there's a fundamental distinction there. The title, How the Irish Became White, it's one of the great titles for any book. It's a wonderful title for a book. Whether it poses a good historical question is something we could debate. I have my own views on that. There is an alternative title of White on Arrival, that's a book about Italian immigrants a generation or two later. My my own sense would be that if an Irish immigrant entered the United States and were asked to identify themselves in this distinctive racial hierarchy based on chattel slavery, something entirely new to them, who are you, what are you, given the options, if white was one of them, they'd say, well, sure, I'm white, if that's what you want to call me. I don't think they ever had to become white in the sense of acquiring a new racial identity, because I don't see tangible evidence that they were racialized in a meaningful sense to begin with, and nor do I see uh, race as an identity that people voluntarily acquire in the mid-19th century. Yeah, I mean, I remember when, when Noel Ignati, if I was a graduate student, and he gave a talk on that book I saw at the University of South Carolina, I was like, but the Irish always were white. You know, 1790 Naturalization Act, from the very beginning of of the Republic, says they, they can participate in politics. There's John McGuinness, who's a, an Irish newspaper editor in New Orleans. He writes a letter to a friend saying there are these rich Creoles of, of mixed racial heritage, often planters and some of them even slave owners in Louisiana. And he points out, guess what? They can't do, they can't vote. 
you know. But we can vote. An Irishman straight off the boat in New Orleans can be registered to vote, even doesn't have to wait for the naturalization period often can vote. And that just makes a huge difference for them to the entry. So, yeah. So so it's, it's anti-Catholicism that really seems to, I think, that seems to kind of matter ideologically. A suspicion that Catholic people can never really fully, truly be American Republican citizens is evidently still persistent enough in mainstream American culture in 1960 that when John F. Kennedy runs for president, this is a big issue for him. And he makes a famous speech in which he addresses this head on early in the, in the, in the campaign. Kevin. Yeah, so that tradition of anti-Catholicism, the sense that a Catholic really ultimately can't be a good American, we see it, of course, it goes back to colonial America, but if we're dealing with the national period of the United States, we see it peaking with the arrival of the Irish in the 1840s and 1850s, but persisting the whole way up to 1960, so so much so that I remember once reading a description of anti-Catholicism as the last intellectually respectable form of bigotry in the United States. So it wasn't okay by 1960, perhaps in intellectual circles, to be overtly racist, but a little bit of anti-Catholicism might be okay or might be expected. So Kennedy had to address this uh, issue head on in 1960, and he did so brilliantly, actually. And he explained simply that I'm not the Catholic candidate for president of the United States. I am the Democrat candidate who happens to be a Catholic that, I think, settles it. I don't know if you could say that anti-Catholicism then goes away. I'm sure there are ripples and currents out there, but it's not an issue for Joe Biden. Joe Biden is a sincere Catholic. He's a believing, practicing Catholic, as well as an ardent Democrat, and he believes in his Irishness and his Catholicism and his working-class roots as all parts of the same package. And I don't know, David, if you'd agree, but I, I didn't see many signs of any overt anti-Catholic targeting of Biden at all. No, I know. I mean, it it wasn't. But I mean, it is the core remnant of Irish-American identity is that they're Roman Catholic. That still is what makes them, you know, very different from from their neighbours. And they've embraced that. But it has become kind of mainstreamed, right? The jargon term, we would say that this is part of the birth of cultural pluralism. The Irish weren't saying that about themselves. Let's be cultural pluralists. But what's happening in practice is that they are changing America. It's not just America accepting them on monolithic terms. Is Joe Biden's reveling in his Catholic identity, is this the last gasp of an Irish-American world? Or is this the, the start of a new phase of, of Irish America? It might be a last gasp in the sense of, of being so overt about it, because I just think younger people today are just not as, as religious as people were. You know, the old kind of Catholic parochial structures are still there and, and people often go to Catholic schools, but I don't think it's as, as muscular as it was when Joe Biden was growing up as a Catholic in the in the 50s and 60s. Then, of course, the church in, in the United States has had all the problems in, as the church in the rest of the world with, with sex scandals in places like Boston. There's a lot of disappointed people, you know, who, who paid their dues and, and went to Mass every Sunday and then to be betrayed by the church in such ways. So I don't think it's, you know, a renaissance of, of Irish Americanness. But again, the Irish Americans have become, it's, it's amazing. You say Patrick's Day is an American thing now, like Cinco de Mayo is in America as well. It's like Christmas or Thanksgiving. It's, it's you know, Jackson, Mississippi has a parade. Everybody has a parade now as an excuse to, to socialize. Um, but in terms of, of a political renaissance, I'm, I'm not sure that it is. 
Kevin Kenny and Dave Gleason, thank you both very much indeed. Thank you, Adam. Appreciate it. Thank you. Dave Gleason and Kevin Kenny, two of the smartest and most prolific historians of Irish America. Irish immigrants, whether Protestant or Catholic, were visibly and audibly different from mainstream white American society. Their presence challenged and transformed ideas about what America is. And so the story of the Irish in America is one of the stories of America itself, of the ways in which a more culturally pluralistic society was created. But there's also something about Ireland, or Irishness, that transcends the immigrant experience, not just in America, of course, but very particularly there. Some quality of imagined Irishness that explains why, for example, Biden chooses to emphasise his Irish and not his English roots. Maybe it's that Irishness can convey so vividly the ideas of self-reliance and of self-sustaining, cosy communities that strike so deep into American political culture. My name's Adam Smith, and you've been listening to The Last Best Hope, a podcast from the RAI, Oxford Centre for the Study of America and its place in the world. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Goodbye.